Lord, as we sit, sit here now before your word, would you make us eager to hear these things, that we would not be slack or think that we've heard these things before, but Lord, cause us to long after your truth so that we love you more, so that we would follow you more, and so that our faith in you would be increased. Lord, would you guide us now by your Holy Spirit? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take this morning the entirety of Hebrews chapter 9, but we're not going to read that entire thing. I want to read the middle section here of chapter 9. Uh, So I will focus on the whole thing. I want to read beginning in verse 11. This is Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant." For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Now, let's place us here where we are. We've spent the past month in chapter 8. And in that time, we've been looking at the new covenant, the new promises and blessings that come in the new covenant through Jesus. 
And so to get some perspective, let's, let's zoom out just a little bit and remember where we are in the whole book of Hebrews. You know, we know, that a good summary of the whole book of Hebrews is just three words. And whoosh, I can remember that. I can remember three words. A good summary of the whole book is simply this. Jesus is better. That's the author's main point. Jesus is better. And this is not just a statement of fact, although it is true. Hebrews is not just an essay. It's not just a religious treatise. This is not a philosophy text that's going to pontificate. Uh, if that's even a word, is that a word? I don't know. Lofty, fancy words. That's not the point of this thing. The book of Hebrews is a sermon itself is a sermon, so it's not just telling us what's true while we sit and listen to it. The book of Hebrews is calling us to be shaped by that truth. That's the reason why the author at the end of the book of Hebrews calls the whole thing a word of exhortation. He's exhorting us or urging us, encouraging us to become more faithful followers of Jesus because Jesus is better. This, by the way, is how the whole Bible functions. The Bible is not just a textbook or an encyclopedia of truths that we look up when we face a moral problem. This is shaping us, shaping our lives based on the truths of God. That these truths of God are causing us to love God more causing us to obey God more, to glorify God more, to fear and honor God more, to enjoy God more. That's what happens when Jesus regenerates us, when he makes us born again by the purposes of the Father, through the work of Christ and the application of the Spirit. He saves us as Christians, not just to be saved, but to be living embodiments of Christ's truth. That we would grow in our maturity in Christ. So he needs to teach us true things in order to do this, but the Bible, nor the author of Hebrews, does not give us all of these truths at once. It would be impossible to do that. Imagine if when you went to high school... Uh, instead of having separate classes for all these different subjects, you were just taught all of the subjects all at once. You know, you just had one big class where spontaneously all together you're learning, you know, algebra and, and Spanish and, and home ec and physics and, and, and world history and ag and weightlifting. And, you know, all these things are just kind of blended together. It would be just a, a huge chaotic mess. So that's not how we teach truth. The author of Hebrews, then, is giving us particular classrooms, various subjects to teach us. So in this section of chapters, the classroom that we're now sitting in is the classroom of Christ as high priest. And this class of Christ as high priest is a prerequisite, maybe, or a a preparation class for another class on faith, which is the chapters to come. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. Chapter 9 now, where we are here, is cinching together 
some major themes of Christ's high priesthood that we've heard before. So we know that Christ enters into the holy place, and this holy place is not just the earthly tent or the earthly tabernacle that was made by human hands, but Christ enters into the heavenly tent, the pattern after which the earthly one was made. And we know that when Christ as high priest uh, makes a sacrifice, he does not do it yearly, year after year on the Day of Atonement, as the old high priest did, but Christ's sacrifice was once for all time. And we know that when Christ as high priest mediates a covenant, the covenant that he mediates for us is not the old covenant of the law. It's a new covenant that comes through his blood. So now here in chapter 9, the author in this chapter is putting all of these high priestly things under one umbrella. And that's why we're taking this whole chapter together. You may have noticed a particular key word mentioned over and over and over again in this chapter. The key word is blood. Blood. That the offering of Christ is a better blood. Now, the driving question for us in our minds that will carry us through here is, what's the deal with all this blood? Why does the author care and talk so much about blood? And let me just say up front that I recognize that I am in a room full of uh, nurses and doctors, and hunters, and farmers, and, and veterinarians uh, who, who have no problem with blood uh, whatsoever. At least maybe you've gotten used to it, many of you. And, and to be frank, I envy you for, for that. I'm not, I, I, I'm not good with blood. I would prefer to just to keep it all inside and, and, and leave it there, and, and there you go. I, I, it makes me squeamish. In fact, uh, when I was in high school, I helped with a blood drive. No idea why I'm doing this, because I know I'm squeamish for it, but they assigned me uh, to be, I forget what they were called, but a, a helper next to a person who's giving blood, and you were just supposed to talk with them uh, to keep their mind off of what's going on. And I remember the first person it ended up being the only person that I talked with. You know that little pad that they put over, over your, well, I don't know how it all works. There's a purpose for that thing, I found out, uh, because when that little pad goes over the hole, the pinprick where the blood was supposed to come out, uh, when it moved just a little bit, the girl who I was talking with, it slipped down, and her blood started to spurt out. I mean spurt. It came in little gushes out, and it got on her shirt, and she was not bothered by it. I don't know why. I was very bothered by it. Nope, I'm out. I'm starting to get dizzy. Reassign me. I can't handle this. I'm aware of it. Uh, so it's for me, at least, maybe this is different for you, seeing blood is odd. There is something about seeing blood that feels both natural and, oddly, unnatural. And yet, if we were Jews in Old Testament Israel, blood would be a central part of our worship. The author of Hebrews talks about this in some of the later parts of the section that I read, uh, how Moses would take uh, hyssop branches 
and, and bind them together with scarlet wool, and, and then he would dip it into the blood of calves and goats. Uh, that blood would have to be mixed with water, we assume, so that it would be a little less uh, viscous or sticky, because otherwise it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. But he'd dip it into this uh, blood water, and, and Moses would go around sprinkling that blood everywhere. I mean, this just sounds like a mess to me. He's sprinkling it on, on the Book of the Covenant. He's sprinkling it, on, sprinkling it on the tent of the tabernacle. He's sprinkling it on the, all the worship vessels, so the altars, the lampstands, the incense, all of those things. He's even sprinkling it, he says, on the people. And, and, I, and I hope he told them that he was going to do that before he just started you know, doing, get ready, guys. Here comes, here comes a, a blood sprinkling. And, and the word sprinkle for me at least, you know, seems to kind of take some of the edge off of it. You know, so maybe a sprinkling of, of blood I can handle. You know, maybe there's a, a, a drop here, you know, a little dab there. It seems to tidy it up. But this whole process had way more going on than that. Now we can see it in parts of the Old Testament. I'll just read one brief section in Second Chronicles chapter 29. This was after a period uh, where... Israel had lost a lot of its religious, or actually Judah had lost a lot of its religious life and is now having a spiritual renewal here. They are coming back to worship the Lord. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 20. Listen for the discussion of blood here. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. I'm getting dizzy. Can't handle this. I, I know, just a squeamish part of me. But you hear the word throwing? This is not because the priest just got really excited about this. Uh, this was part of their practice, part of their worship of God. Some people translate, uh, some versions translate this word thrown as they dashed it or they splashed it or my personal favorite because I think it's fitting, they splattered it. It's a messy job. The look of this whole scene afterward would have looked something similar to a horror film just in the daytime. Now, some people will look at this practice and say, that's weird. That's weird. I mean, especially since this is part of worshiping a God that you say is love. This seems like a very barbaric practice at best. It feels perhaps primitive or archaic. And we know that this is part of the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, this practice of animal blood sacrifice is done away with, but not because it's wrong. This Old Testament blood practice is replaced 
by something better, but still bloody. You can look at, let's see, where is it? Verse 12, I think this is probably the key verse of the text. Look at the verse here. Uh, he, the he there is Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goat and calves. Oh, good. <laughs> no more blood. But look, he doesn't stop there. Not by means of blood and calves, but by means of his own blood. By means of his own blood. In the new covenant, it's not that there was no blood. It's that there was different blood. Instead of sacrificing with the blood of animals, there's a sacrifice with the blood of man. Specifically, the blood of one man, of the God-man, of Jesus. And Jesus' blood here is better, but it's still unsettling. We know that we as Christians make a lot of the blood of Jesus, and, and rightly so. The Bible often talks about Christ's blood. In fact, we sing whole hymns about these sort of things. They're, 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 they're truthful, um, but they're sometimes graphic in some of their language. I mean, we even put it in the title, There's Power in the Blood. I don't think that's in our hymnal, but maybe you know it. Wonder-working power. Is that the right one? Um, I should stop singing. But there's power in the blood. Okay, I can handle that. How about, are you washed in the blood? There's an image. How about, how about these lyrics from the, Nothing But the Blood? Let me read the lyrics. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So think about the blood as a fount is graphic. But I think the most graphic depiction of this is the song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Well, there's a title. Wouldn't guess that's a Christian hymn necessarily if you just knew the title. There's a fountain filled with blood. Actually, we'll sing this in a little bit. But here's the lyrics part of them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Mm. I mean, you think about the imagery of that, especially in like swimming pool season. I mean, to be plunged beneath the flood. You know, I get the symbolism, but it's, it's just, it's grotesque, honestly, if we look at it. And, it. and if we're not a Christian, if someone who is not a believer came in and looked at these things, they might hear us and think that we are absolutely out of our minds. I mean, this is, this is morbid. They might ask, you know, why, why do you have to be so gory, these Christians who, who, who are singing underneath the symbol of, of death, of a cross? They're singing now about blood. They must be nuts. I mean, is this church or is this like an Ozzy Osbourne concert? A Christian sees an ironic beauty in the blood of Jesus. 
We know that it's graphic. But it's not just about the guts and the gore of all of this. The reason why we see so much beauty in it is because of what's said here at the end of verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see in blood forgiveness of sins. We see in this blood a source of life. Now, why? Why does this come through blood? God, in his moral law, requires and is right to require equivalent retribution as punishment for sin or violations of the law. There's a bunch of big words. He requires equivalent retribution. We know what this is in less fancy terms. You're probably familiar with with the eye for an eye principle. It's in the scripture. Eye for an eye, hand for hand, tooth for tooth, cow for cow, you know, that sort of thing. And and, uh, this is good. We actually want this. So if someone steals my Elmo doll, That happens in my house sometimes. If someone steals my Elmo doll, I don't just want them to say sorry, right? I want want Elmo back. Where's my Elmo? You know, and so, so the equivalent thing would be to restore then what's been taken. Eye for an eye, then what do we do about life for life? Uh, the Leviticus equates life of the creature with, with our blood. And, and so that's the reason why when, when in the early chapters of Genesis, Cain killed his brother Abel. You remember the story? And the famous, you know, oh, the Lord says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord's response to that is the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So in order for the debt of sin to be paid, in order for there to be true forgiveness, there needs to be equivalent retribution. Blood must be paid for blood. Now, some will say in response to this, blood paid for blood. Okay, I get it. But then why does the Lord require blood for us? I mean, most of us, as far as I know, have never taken the lifeblood of another human being We're not murderers, as far as I know. Uh, That's a whole other conversation if you are. Uh, But uh, so so we go, if I have not taken life, why is my lifeblood required? Jesus' response to that is you underestimate the depth of your own sin. Jesus says that the wickedness of your heart has really pricked the blood of others. It's what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Famous sermon, Matthew chapter 5. You can, we won't read it. You can look it up if you want. But, but Jesus says in that section, he says to all the people, you've heard it said in the law, don't murder. If you murder, you'll be judged. Part of that's true, but you misunderstand it. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder, you will be judged. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the same judgment as a murderer. 
And the one who demeans or insults his brother will be liable to the fires of hell. Oh my. He says there, you have blood on your hands and you don't even realize it. And just as you drew blood, so your blood must be required. Just as you have destroyed lives, so your life must be destroyed. No one is guiltless, not one of us. Sin will be the death of us. But God, by his mercy and his judgment, accepted for his people a substitute of blood. And the high priest would, would offer in the people's place a sacrifice of the, light of, of the life of the goat or the, or the calves, and then he would sprinkle it around to forgive the debt of blood. But, but you can spot the issue here. The problem with this is that the blood of an animal, as precious as that might be, is not equivalent to the value of the blood of man. As costly as it might be to slaughter a bull as a sacrifice, that cannot pay for man's blood. Offering a bull sacrifice is like uh, paying the minimum payment on a credit card as we continue to charge it higher and higher and higher and, and we just push the problem of debt further down the road. So then, when Jesus steps in as a high priest, he does something that no high priest has ever done before. They couldn't do it before because each priest owed his own debt. Jesus then steps into the heavenly holy place with a better offering, with better blood. Jesus comes in not with a bowl of offering in his hands. He comes with the offering of his own veins. Christ, our high priest, the Son of God, is not only the offerer of blood for sin, he is the offering of blood for sin. So it's like if, when, when the offering plate passes by him instead of pulling out his wallet uh, and writing a check or putting something in um, out of his pocket. It's as if he sets the plate on the floor and then sits himself in it. Christ gave himself as an offering. He gave his lifeblood as a ransom for many. Now, let's ride this wave here to the end. We know that we're here in this classroom of Christ as our high priest. And this is schooling us for the classroom of faith, preparing us to increase our faith. But how exactly does the blood of Christ enact forgiveness? What specifically does the blood of Jesus do for us? There's lots of things we could say about this, but I'll stick to just three things because, well, I'm a preacher and three's the, you know, magic number for things. I'll just stick to three things that the author of Hebrews here specifically says that the blood of Christ does for us. The first one here in verse 12, he says that the blood of Christ secures eternal redemption. 
That's the first. The blood of Christ secures eternal redemption. And we'll get to expand on this a little more as he expands it in the next section. But for now, I just want us to see that since Jesus is eternal, since Jesus is and was before creation of of time, the redemption of the lifeblood of Christ is also eternal. His blood does not lose its power. There is no expiration date. You don't even have to refrigerate it to keep it fresh. Which means, if his redemption is eternal, and if you find yourself struggling, perhaps plagued with doubt, perhaps wrestling with faith, perhaps losing a battle against sin, perhaps lacking assurance of your own salvation, do not look for answers within yourself. Don't look there. It will only make you dizzy and it will drive you crazy and it will give Satan a foothold. Instead, look to the infinite worth of the blood of Jesus. Jesus purchased you by his blood and his redemption is eternally secure. That's the first. The blood of Christ secures eternal redemption. The second one, the blood of Christ purifies. It's in verse 13, 14. The blood of Christ purifies or cleanses. Now, when I hear the word purify, I, I can't help it. My, my, maybe it's just part of my upbringing and the culture there, but my mind automatically, when I hear the word purify, goes to thinking about purity rings. Is that even still a thing anymore? I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about when I reference purity rings? The, these were rings that uh, usually preteens would, would, would have some sort of talk about relationships and sex and all of those things. And, and you'd put this on as a pledge to remain sexually pure or faithful to save yourself from marriage. And there are many good things about the idea, of course, of a purity ring. But, but one of the difficulties is that if a person ever had an impure thought or took an impure action, doing impure things, this gave the impression that that purity was lost forever and could not be regained that the purity is forever tainted and that I am forever stained. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches here that the blood of Jesus not only forgives sin, it cleanses us, it purifies us from all unrighteousness, all. This is not like the stuff that you put in the laundry that has a grease stain that comes out technically clean, but you still see the oily spot. No. Pure. The hymns that we sing about this are correct. Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. And, And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All 
Do you believe that? Last one. This will carry us home. Third one, the blood of Christ brings us to serve. The blood of Christ brings us to serve. You can see it at the end of verse uh, 14. He says, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We are purified so that we would become servants of God. Jesus just not, doesn't just clean us up, dust us to make us knickknacks to sit on the shelf. We are made to serve him. One of my professors in college used to call us all the blood-bought lambs of Jesus. Part of his regular lectures. It's kind of a mouthful, but he'd call us all blood-bought lambs of Jesus. And mm, that fits the scripture, and I, and I love it. I always found that to be incredibly comforting, that I would be a blood-bought lamb of Jesus. In fact, the affirmation of faith that we did earlier in our service from the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't just say that this is comforting. It says that this is our only comfort. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has satisfied for all my sins. I find comfort in that. I hope that you find comfort there too, that you are not your own, that you were purchased by the blood of Christ. But that comfort also comes with a call, with a challenge to us. Because if Jesus paid your price with his blood, Jesus is not only your Savior, he is also your Lord. He bought you. Jesus is now your new master, and you are his servant. And he calls you, Christian, servant of God, to take up your cross and follow after him. Are you willing to do that? This is a high cost, but it's worth it. It is worth it. Because of all of the masters that we could choose to follow in this life, there is none who is better than Jesus. Jesus is the only master who loves his servants so much that he would pay the most costly price, the price of his own blood, to make them his own. This is the blood-bought love of our God. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we know that all of us who believe we are your blood-bought lambs. Mm. Help us to find rest in that. How great is your love. And we thank you for your cleansing blood, blood that redeems us, that purifies us, and that brings us to serve. Lord, your sacrifice is great, and we are thankful. You're a good God, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.